Hello, I'm Yonit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And we are Unholy, two Jews on the news from Kesha Podcasts. Hi, Jonathan. Hello, Yonit. It's a sort of, uh, it's a kind of somber hello today, isn't it? I mean, the world is in a dark place, it feels. So it's hard to be super cheery. I'm guessing you're just absolutely run ragged broadcasting news all hours and uh, on the air all the time to a waiting Israeli nation. Yeah, you know, I, I walking here around uh, around the newsroom and you see these uh, televisions in all kinds of languages from all kinds of places in the world that all have the same Chiron war in Europe. And it really, as you said, it, it, it it's not a good mood day, right? It does make you feel concerned and and despondent and we've been uh, through this year two years of covid and in being immersed in 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 you know the r and the infection rates and 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 it kind of now that the, the fifth wave is waning we actually realize that what humans can do to humans is always worse than anything else we don't need viruses we don't need pandemics it's just back to this and that's very depressing yeah, I, I know lots of people have been feeling this, that one way or another, when is the news going to stop? You know, when is history going to give us a break? There's too much history happening. And it was like, okay, we've got out of a global pandemic. Before that, you know, the world was, parts of it anyway, trembling at the prospect of Donald Trump as president and just wanting a kind of breather. And remember, it was the big promise of Joe Biden that there would be a return to normality. And instead, as you say, a really history-making event I mean, obviously, there has been war in Europe since 1945 with the, mm -hmm. in the Balkans in the 1990s. But this already is going to be and threatens to be bigger and more devastating. And, you, you know, I had a text message from a journalist colleague saying, you know, we're due to meet next week, you know, World War Three permitting. And, you know, it's that kind of black humour, gallows humour that journalists specialise in. But there is something of that mood um, going on in the world. And it's just, you know, it's one of those days, as you and I speak, it's, it's the invasion of Ukraine is, is only a few hours old. But it was one of those days where you wake up with that very kind of heavy feeling because there's that split second before you remember, you know, just as you emerge out of unconsciousness and then it comes back to you. And it, this was one of those mornings where it was a very heavy feeling. So we're going to talk about that a bit. Uh, and obviously... Um, you know, given who you're we British, are so when you mean you a bit, you mean a lot, right? A lot. I mean, okay. I'm interested in how this looks from where you are, because Israel well, is in a quite unique place on this. Indeed, yeah. I'm, I wanted to talk a little bit about that, but also I'm thinking about the fact that this whole thing is happening right in an open air arena, right when the whole world is watching, and and you're seeing one country being attacked uh, by another country. And no one is coming, essentially, to the rescue, right? I mean, what you're seeing is, yes, we'll close down their bank accounts. <laughs> but you're not seeing, um, and I know this is really naive to say, but, but everyone is watching this and, and, and no one is helping Ukraine. Now, I'm the last person in the world that can say to any other country, send troops, right? Or the IDF should send Israeli forces to uh, help Ukraine. But, but just that feeling, what, is, what message does this send Everywhere, what message does it send to to countries like Iran or to countries like China? What message does every country in the world 
uh, get today, which is only we can protect ourselves, right? It could ignite this arms race that we're not even uh, uh, realizing. And that was uh, me trying to lighten the Shabbat mood. So I will go on to answer what you were talking about. Well, no, about, just before is, you do, though, I mean, yeah. I think you're saying something really important. The Britain's former foreign secretary, David Miliband, who's now in New York working for the International Rescue Committee, working for refu on refugee problems and the like, he made a very important speech a while back talking about the age of impunity and that we're now in an age of impunity where you know bad regimes can do terrible things and know that pretty well they will get away with it. And um, there is obviously a connection here between what's happened and what has not happened in recent years, that what we're witnessing is the price of inaction. And Gary Kasparov, who besides being a former chess champion, is also a kind of political, a focus of political dissent, in Russia, has said that this is the price for the amnesia of the Western world. He, and, mm. and he was saying, you know, it was Chechnya 20 years ago. It was Crimea, Crimea in 2014. It's been Syria the whole of the last decade. You know, what more warning did you need from Vladimir Putin to take this guy seriously and to realise he means business? And huge mm. amounts of the debates in our world uh, since Iraq were always about the price of intervention, the risks of intervention. Well, there are risks of non-intervention yeah. and inaction too. And the world didn't act in those other cases and therefore look at what we have to deal with instead. I, th I think exactly. I mean, does avoiding war at all costs actually indeed cause less war or more war? And what is left of this idea of, of the West, right? Of this idea if someone attacks you, unprovoked, right? you're not, no one's going to come in and help you. I mean, it's just, it leaves a lot of open and very troubling questions. Um, and again, we're, we're just at the beginning of this. So, so we don't know where this will lead. And I've heard a, a very smart Israeli analyst who I spoke to and, and kind of telling me that Putin is this kind of man that doesn't have the exact A to B to C, right? He thinks this is the way, but actually every step he makes opens up 10 possibilities for him. And that is how he, he, he moves forward. So we don't know. Uh, what the end game of this is. Now, you uh, started talking about Israel, and I think it's important um, to kind of reiterate, we talked about this a few episodes ago, and say that Israel is, of course, in a, a bit of a delicate situation uh, here, right? On the one hand, of course, uh, United States is our staunchest ally. We know this, and we know who we get $3.8 billion from every uh, a year, but obviously, because of the connection and the fact that Russia is in Syria and because Israel needs to act against uh, Iranian targets and, and other targets inside Syria, it needs Russia. It needs Russia and uh, everything that is connected to the Iran deal, which we will relate to uh, later. So it is walking a very tight rope. And you saw two different responses yesterday. Israel was talking about the importance of the sovereignty of Ukraine without mentioning the word Russia. Um, today I, mean, I saw is that, that statement. Extraordinary, an official foreign ministry statement. Yeah, wasn't it? it took two days it's, to actually uh, phrase that. They worked on it for two days to, and it to say that. And it, and it omitted the word Russia. It didn't say the word. It said it's respected Ukraine's uh, uh, integrity and sovereignty. But today, it's already a much uh, a more uh, strict condemnation of Russia itself, uh, coming from the words of, from the mouth of, of Yair Lapid, uh, the foreign minister. So we have stepped up. I think Israel has realized that it can't kind of stay uh, on the sidelines of this. Uh, I spoke to an American official yesterday because I wanted to kind of see how this is landing in, in the United States. And he said to me, Israel suddenly realizes it's Switzerland 
which is a very, very, you know, it's, this is laden with meaning, this, because we know that Switzerland was obviously infamously uh, neutral uh, when it counted in World War II. So suddenly Israel is neutral. That is not a, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't s fall in, in a good way in, in, in the... Uh, I mean, that is scathing, isn't it? I mean, if Washington is regarding Israel as the Switzerland of this situation, a mo and as we've been saying, a moral situation, this is a moral crisis among... Uh, beyond just being a geopolitical crisis, that is really damning if Washington yeah. does regard Israel that way. And I'm interested to know whether Israelis themselves are saying, we don't want to be Switzerland. We can't be neutral uh, in a, in a situation is, like this. I think that the time has passed on that. I mean, the, the sense that I'm getting here is that it, it we are moving more and more towards not being on the fence. We could maybe do that as long as there wasn't actually an invasion. But the minute this happens, then we, and we have to choose sides. It's obvious what, what side the Israelis uh, will choose. But again, this is a, these are layers, right? So first there's a condemnation. Then we will see something in the UN that Israel will sign, uh, I assume. And then you'll see sanctions against specific people then Israel will have to decide what it's doing. So this is going to go on for a while, but I think that the, the patience uh, is not uh, there anymore uh, in the, in the uh, US administration. You know, we should explain to our new listeners who we hope are joining us as each week goes on, why it is that Israel is unable or feels reticent to join the immediate you know, bandwagon of countries condemning uh, Russia, why it feels the need to have had that neutral posture, albeit that you're saying that is now under revision. Because we've talked about it before on the podcast, but I think it'll be useful for people coming to this conversation afresh. There are some very interesting reasons why Israel can't just say, you know, no, Mr. Putin. And I think, you know, you should refresh our memory. On that. Well, first and foremost, is Israel needs uh, Putin's goodwill so it can act uh, with a free hand in Syria, where uh, it attacks Iranian targets and Hezbollah uh, targets and armed shipments to Hezbollah. These are uh, Israel's worst enemies, and they are on the border because of Iranian presence uh, in Syria. So it needs an open open way of, of acting in Syria, that is the most important thing. And it needs Russia on its side, the same way that it needs the United States on its side in the negotiations uh, across the table from Iran and Vienna, which are, by the way, remarkably still happening, right? We will talk about that in a minute, this sort of balance between um, the United States and, and Russia being at odds here in Ukraine, but actually still uh, in the same uh, negotiating table in Vienna. So yes, Israel needs Russia strategically. There's no love lost there. You know, I called it when we talked about it last time. I said Israel is stuck between the United States and Russia is between uh, a dad and an angry stepdad. It's not that we don't know where at the end of the day the chips will fall, but it is a difficult dilemma. And when you see, Jonathan, something like the condemnation that Israel uh, voiced today, directly condemning Russia for the first time since 2008, that was the Georgian crisis, we know that someone in the Kremlin is writing this down, right? We have no doubt about that, but that is just the way it's going to be. The more this intensifies, the more it becomes complicated. Israel is going to have to choose a side. It is choosing a side. You said earlier that, you know, about this notion of inaction, that the world is doing so little, almost nothing for Ukraine. And on one level, that is really obviously true. Um, there's some discussion about sending arms to Ukraine. Germany brought down a lot of mockery on its head when it offered or did send 5,000 protective helmets to Ukraine. But, you know, maybe it gained the respect back with the decision with Nordstrom, too. Right? Absolutely, I mean, it did, was, um, because that was back. a more fierce sanction. But in a way, in that move, the Germany move, you get a good 
grasp of the range of responses because military response, not so much. We're not going to do much. Here's a few protective helmets. But instead, the way we're going to respond to this is economic. And Germany's decision to to halt, we don't know if it's fully cancelled, but for now, halt, suspend progress on the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline is obviously in that direction. Uh, Boris Johnson here um, in in London has made an announcement also saying that there will be an economic response, although interestingly saying this operation will have to fail militarily as well. I uh, didn't say how that would happen. But let's, the, what it brings out to me is, is the kind of powerlessness Western nations, if you like, have when faced with this kind of threat. Because the obvious option is this economic response, sanctions. And yet, where, where is the example of those succeeding in a situation like this? Because you look at Iran, you look at uh, the Assad regime in Syria, there have been economic sanctions against those regimes, and they haven't really made a difference. Assad is still there. The well, Iran, Iran it brought them to the negotiating table. It brought right? them that to the negotiating table. It was the pressure for um for something for. An, but but a in goal. a situation where the leader in charge is not that bothered by the impact of even crippling economic sanctions on his own people. That is pretty difficult because mm-hmm. it's not that much of a stick if he doesn't care if it beats his own people. Sure. On the other hand, hard power, I mean, nobody is really talking about that. And, and one very sobering uh, thing I heard from a British military official was that nuclear thinking, his phrase, nuclear thinking is part of Russia's strategy. In other words, the nuclear deterrent isn't some remote, abstract, you know, never behind glass, never to be broken. But on the contrary, as when they game out all their different options, the nuclear element of their arsenal is part of their thinking. For that reason alone, no one is going to dare tangle with the Russians. Mm-hmm. And you look at the United States, which has the greatest arsenal in history, let alone on the, in the planet now. No military arsenal like that has ever been assembled, and yet it can't use it. It has all this mm-hmm. hard power, but it, obviously it can't use it because of that possibility. And so that adds to this terrible feeling of powerlessness. I don't think people are wanting to do nothing for Ukraine, but that you look at the toolbox and there's not that much there that you can be sure will work. And of course, it will be economic and we hope it will work, but there's not a ton of options. Yes, but I mean, look what the world has gone through in these decades since the end of the Second World War. Whoever wants an example of why not to intervene, you have enough, uh, you know, you have Iraq, you have other places that are an example of what happens when you try uh, and, and you fail. I just don't think it means that you never need to try again. And in specific cases like this one, I I think leaders around the world should ask themselves, what is it that we're doing? Yes, maybe uh, economic sanctions at the beginning, maybe sanctions around uh, Putin's own oligarchs is important. Maybe that will make a difference and we can talk about that. But if not, then what? And I I think that the world has not really come together and, and thought about that question. David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, who was with us last week, um, slightly, you know, smiled as he mentioned the local angle uh, and our search for the local angle, which we've been doing a bit by talking about um, Israel. Uh, uh, You know, the other element, of course, is there are Jews in Kiev, Jews in Ukraine. Um, Historically, we, you know, Ashkenazi Jews do feel a connection 
with that place. There have been a few interesting commentary pieces written by people whose parents or grandparents were from there. But there is still a community there of some 20,000 people. Uh, and they're, you know, uh, uh, reportedly bracing for the same shortages, food shortages, etc. that uh, the rest of Ukrainian uh, nation will be bracing for. But one interesting thing, which I think maybe hasn't been sort of thought about that much is the also the fear of as they put it anti-semitic provocations to delegitimize the regime in kiev what do they mean by that it's an odd thing but notice the rhetoric that uh vladimir putin is using at the moment and that is um that we will not stop until we've achieved the demilitarization and denazification mm-hmm. of Ukraine. And this goes to something that he, a a drum he has been banging since the Maidan protests and revolution in 2013-2014. This notion that the uh, government in Kiev, the anti-Russian or Putin-skeptic government in Kiev, was somehow overrun with neo-Nazis and anti-Semites. And therefore, there has been a constant attempt to talk up or, or even often exaggerate or even invent anti-Jewish attacks or speech or violence in Ukraine to say, see, these are the Nazis who are running Ukraine. This is why we have to go in there and restore um, or or impose a better regime. Uh, Once again, it's, you know, there are Jews there who are worried for their own safety, but oddly, the Jewish history, the Jewish experience is part of this story um, because it it's a useful tool for you, for Vladimir Putin to tap into that World War Two era notion that there is heroic Russia fighting against fascism and, in Europe, and that's not and that isn't making it a hard sell. The fact that the president Zelensky of Ukraine is Jewish that's not at all a hard sell for him. I guess I guess not. I mean, the, the so you know they have to say so cunning are the racist anti-Semite neo-Nazis <laughs> in Ukraine that they have handed the presidency and the prime minister's office to the <laughs> Jews. I mean, it's obviously crazy, you know, a crazy line of logic, um, but it is the argument. So there is, you know, I, as I say, I think it's not just a parochial concern. I think it is part of the rhetorical war, the yeah, kind of propaganda it, war. Jews find themselves caught in that particular place in the middle on that one. Yeah, here it is. You know, obviously there's a huge Russian community, Russian immigrants, million, a uh, million, maybe even more. Obviously, and Russians and Ukrainians living here together, and now their families are fighting each other. It's a very strange. It's a very strange uh, uh, situation. Um, and of course, there are Russian oligarchs uh, in Israel coming here under the law of return. By the way, not only pro-Putin oligarchs. You have the anti-Putin oligarchs like uh, Leonid Nevzlin here as well, and and questions about people like Roman Abramovich. I can tell you that I uh, saw a letter written to the American ambassador here, Tom Knights, asking, uh, several Israeli groups asking for, um, I think, a consideration if anyone will uh, use sanctions against Roman Abramovich, saying he's a philanthropist, he's an Israeli, he helps Israeli institutions. So this is also going to be an issue definitely in the UK in the next couple of days, for sure. Well, you, you've heard the phrase London grad, you know, that London <laughs> has been this place for a decade or more where serious Russian money has 
uh, uh, gathered and plenty of oligarchs here. And the suggestion is made because there are quite a lot of high value Russian donors to the ruling Conservative Party in this country. And so the suggestion is made that therefore there will be some appetite to go a bit soft on economic sanctions or make exemptions because there's a lot of Russian money here and there's people with who who powerfully are able perhaps to uh, bend the ear of the authorities. That's been an issue here. I'm fascinated to know if, because we know there are some oligarchs gathered in Israel, I mean, big numbers, or, well, you'll tell me if they're big numbers, but there are they are there, whether they too are either accused of or, you, in your view, actually are, Bending the ear of either Netanyahu before or Bennett now to say hands off Russia, don't don't it's go a, after it's Putin. It's a different it's a different kind of relationship because first of all, the political contributions you can give uh, as an oligarch in this country are much smaller, and 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 most Israeli politicians don't need it. They have their own uh, funding, so that's not an issue here of having the ear of. But obviously, as I said, there are oligarchs here on both sides, the pro-Putin and the anti-Putin. Uh, Aside, I should make note, Jonathan, that also a lot of Jewish organizations in Israel and around the world uh, might be in a bit of a problem if you start to sanction uh, Russian uh, oligarchs. This is this is going to affect everyone around the world uh, for for all kinds of reasons that we don't even see now. I, someone uh, reminded me yesterday that uh, the prices of wheat are going to go up dramatically uh, because of this uh, war, and that means all around the world, bread prices are going to go up. I live in a region where if you just raise the prices with in five cents, there's going to be and there was already mayhem. So that is going to affect everyone around the world in some ways that we don't even know about. And right now, I mean, what's strange is the way the world can turn on a dime, you know, where everyone is obsessed about COVID uh, or, you mm -hmm. know, the global issue. And then suddenly the entire global community is focused, as it rightly should be, on Ukraine. Nevertheless, geopolitics never rests and never stops. And there are developments in which, which have a huge bearing on the Middle East that are going on, as it were, despite all this and I, in a way i find it very interesting that they're even happening now and yet i've got a little theory that maybe actually they could almost perversely be helped by what's going on now but anyway you tell us what's going on because you're the one who's in the know. right so we are talking about the iran deal and the discussions around the iran deal in uh, vienna that are still going on right <laughs> which means that the russians and the americans are in the same side and you have rob malley as the american envoy and ulyanov as the russian envoy discussing this we actually thought that a deal is very much imminent uh, this week. Uh, and there's, there was actually 20 pages of a draft that was uh, that were leaked to Reuters, and we kind of saw what what the deal would be. Um, so this is going on, as you say, geopolitics don't don't stop. This is going on parallel to what is happening uh, in in Russia at the same time. Uh, I spoke to an Israeli official yesterday who said to me, "If only the United States would threaten Iran with the same credibility." and force that they're threatening Russia, we'd be in a different place. So Israel is concerned about this, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But that is what is going on at the same time. It's a fascinating illustration of how the world is capable of walking and chewing gum <laughs> at the same time. Normally, when a huge global event goes on like this, where the whole world's attention is on one thing, that is usually a reason to worry, because it can mean that bad people do bad things when the rest of the world is distracted, when their attention is elsewhere. And there, there are examples of that. In fact, it even happened in the first wave of COVID. All kinds of uh, regimes got away with things because while no one was looking. 
in, so you'd be worried about, you know, what Kim Jong-un is thinking right now or China, what they think they can get away with. There can be, though, very unusually, a slight upside, which is if people want to make diplomatic concessions that would normally exact a price in terms of domestic politics or bad coverage or bad PR, now is the moment they would do that. Uh, there was a British spin doctor in British politics nearly nearly 20 years ago who got fired because during 9-11, they sent a memo to colleagues saying, today is a good day to bury bad news. And, oh. you know, this was seen as so cynical uh, that she paid with her job. But in a way, if the Biden administration, if Rob Malley and the others need to do something that's a bit tricky, now might be the time. On the other hand, if there's some kind of linkage where Russia says, we're not going to give our blessing to this or that move with Iran unless you go easier on us in terms of Ukraine, well, that, of course, would be very bad. Yep. We don't know how much of the of what is happening in Ukraine is percolating in that room uh, in, in Vienna. We do know that the, the discussions are still uh, ongoing. We know that Israel is very worried about it, right? It was promised a longer and, and stronger agreement, and it's now calling it a shorter and a weaker agreement. But I think there are many parts, even in Israel's security echelon, that it would at least breathe a sigh of relief and say, if we have two years, two years and a half in which this is under some sort of supervision, it's better than nothing. Um, and again, remember, this is this comes on the cusp of the deal that existed and that Trump tore up uh, with the encouragement of Benjamin Netanyahu. So, so it will give the world uh, some sort of respite. Israel is very concerned about this. But for now, it's 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 still going strong. The, the discussions are still are still happening. They haven't blown up yet, which is really something, and will be uh, you know a feather in the cap of the Biden <laughs> Biden administration, just purely in terms of you know capability, because very often even the you know White House, the presidency of the United States, often it does struggle to walk and chew gum at the yeah. same time. Often there isn't enough uh, capacity to deal with more than one problem. And you started by saying that their promise was returned to normalcy. I think their promise with regards to, or the promise to themselves, right, the Biden administration, they wanted to pivot to China, right? That was the whole plan. Where is that now? Now they're dealing with Iran again, with, with Russia again. This is not, I think, what they had planned to be doing in 2022. Isn't the pivot to China, one, it's slightly waiting for Godot, isn't it? It is one of those things <laughs> that every administration you know, I am so ancient that I did actually cover the first term of the first Clinton administration um, back in the early 90s. And there they were talking about the pivot to Asia, the pivot to, you know, um, to, to China. And uh, each time events intervene and somehow it gets... I thought um, you were going to say, I was so ancient, I remember say, sitting with Mao Zedong and he said to me, Jonathan... <laughs> Very nice, Johnny. Thank you for suggesting I might be even older, <laughs> even older than uh, I had previously been prepared to admit. As it happens, I didn't cover the early years of the Mao administration, but there are days when I feel not the Cultural Revolution. Not I like should that. have done. We have Chutzpah and Mensch to distribute our weekly yes. awards. Mm -hmm. And I think you're going first, aren't you, with Chutzpah? I will. I will. Go, surprise, go surprise. I'm doing the Chutzpah this week. I will take <laughs> you back, my friend, to the uh, 2014 uh, year in Israel where Benjamin Netanyahu is still prime minister. And he decides, and he later admitted to this, basically uh, dismantle his coalition and go to the 2015 elections because of a law 
The law was called Chok Israel Hayom. It was a law that was supposed to hurt the revenues of a newspaper that was then considered to be Netanyahu's mouthpiece. Israel Hayom is a newspaper that was founded by billionaire Sheldon Edelson in 2007. And again, considered by many Israelis to be uh, uh, Netanyahu's mouthpiece. We are fast forwarding to the year 2022. Benjamin Netanyahu is no longer prime minister. Miriam Edelson, the now widow of Sheldon Edelson, is the publisher of Israel Hayom. And she has actually pivoted the newspaper less to Netanyahu and more to other political figures. By the way, last week there was an op-ed against Netanyahu in the newspaper. The whole country talked about it. And now, lo and behold, the Likud, still under Benjamin Netanyahu, wants to bring forth a law that will, yes, you guessed it, curtail the revenues of Israel Hayom. So I think that is a bit of a chutzpah, just when you think about the whole circle that this uh, thing has, uh, has gone through. It's, um, it's kind of a different law. It has to deal with other things, but the, the bottom line is still yeah. hurting the revenues of, of Israel Hayom. So yeah, no, once I think they objected a, to it, now they support it. It's an egregious act of chutzpah, which is, you know, we have one rule when you're on our side, and then suddenly we discover a whole different rule when you're on the other side. No, I think that is uh, right in the dictionary definition of, of chutzpah. For Mensch, um, I initially was thinking that I wanted to nominate um the ambassador of Kenya, Martin Kimani, ambassador to the United Nations, who gave a really great speech um, at the meeting of the Security Council earlier uh, this week, uh, making the case uh, as a the representative of a once colonized nation uh, in defense of Ukraine. And it's quite rare you make people, that connection is made between what colonialization or imperialism in Africa and imperialism at the hands of Vladimir Putin. And he did it very subtly, but just made a speech that essentially said, um, you know, we know all about being invaded or being uh, others taking control of our destiny. And this is bad. So he was a first, uh, an initial choice. But I think he, uh, given everything that's happened, I, I think we would want to make special mention of uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, president of Ukraine at this moment, not just for the not just for the symbolism of, of of what his nation is going through, but very specifically for a speech he made in late Wednesday night to his nation. I really think it was a speech for the ages. I think it's a speech that will be quoted in years to come, um, where he tries to not just gird the people of Ukraine for what's coming, but actually addresses Russian people themselves and says in Russian uh, that we are, you know, we are a people too. And he says, you're, they're telling you that these addressing the Russians, they're telling you that this flame will liberate the people of Ukraine, but the Ukrainian people are free. They remember their past and are building their future. Ukraine on your TV news and the real Ukraine are two totally different countries. Ours is real. And it's an amazing sort of plea. Yeah. I recommend people go and, and find the English text of it. It's a very moving speech um, addressing Russians. Lots of you have relatives in Ukraine, he says. You studied in Ukrainian universities. You have Ukrainian friends. You know our character. You know what matters to us. Listen to yourselves. The people of Ukraine want peace. I found it exceptionally it's moving to read yeah. it. I, I think Volodymyr Zelensky, who knows what's going to happen with him as an individual? Is he going to be... The president in exile eventually is something, you know, all kinds of awful things are possible. Uh, but this week, I think he's a standout figure. And I think we um, want to recognize that. 
So, um, so before, just before we go, we do have to mention, these are very tense times, but we do want to lighten the mood a little bit and say that on this day, right, 25th of February, uh, two great Englishmen were born. I'm assuming many others, but we will point out the fact that George Harrison was born on this date. Sadly, not with us anymore. And Jonathan Friedland was born on this day. This it's is very true. exciting. It is true. It's Thank you exciting. so much for remembering. It is very exciting. Just pers- persisting with what has a regular theme of our podcast, which is how I'm Which is embarrassing older, you? Which is oh, I thought embarrassing about, about me, me, me embarrassing me, you, which is a yes, persistent theme of our podcast. That, that is a theme, sure. and my aging is a little theme too. Um, but yes, I, I, do, I, I do like birthdays. My late father used to think that one birthday was not enough and there should be three days. And he took his lead from the Christmas festival and thought there should be birthday eve birthday and then birthday <laughs> boxing day so i'm i'm merely at the beginning of these festivities Yoni. i think it's nice I'm, and think since i'm like mentally and emotionally about 55 years older than you i think that i i can as from my life experience uh <laughs> i'm kidding but no seriously we should we should uh, share with our listeners that i sent you a package which arrives on tuesday by the time they hear this podcast you will have already opened it but on tuesday you just wrote to me and said that the parcel has arrived a lovely looking British. parcel. I said a lovely big parcel maybe, was arrived. I think I think maybe the word lovely wasn't there, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And then Ooh. you um and then you went on to 24 hour silence on WhatsApp, which I assumed meant you opened the present and you hated it. And then I asked yes. you 24 hours later what what's what gives? Like what's with the present? Why did you hate it? And then you it, <laughs> said that you hadn't opened it yet. Yeah. Because it was, of it was so funny strange. and it struck me as such a beautifully Jewish moment because yeah. it was it was a variation on the Jewish mother who gives her son the red tie and the blue tie. And of course, he cut, turns up for Shabbos dinner the next week with the blue tie and she goes, so you hated the red tie? And <laughs> there was something in that in here because of course I hadn't opened it. And I messaged you to say, what kind of barbarian do you think I am that would, when your birthday's on a Friday, who opens the present on the Tuesday? So of course People I have trouble waiting and want to get the present now okay I will this just, is our, I will this is say you saying you're 55 years older than me is it possible that this is a very young side to your need that thinks the minute the present's there it should be ripped you just open, open it well i'm just saying that um you'll probably yeah whatever it's a present for you that's the only thing i'm not going to spoil it because you haven't opened it yet but it's a present for you like i can't yeah. you can't hand hand it down to anyone else no so, and i won't like, do i'm like so you may have done with the t-shirt i gave you i'm just saying there's oh. a lot of guilt trip. A lot of guilt trip going on here. It, it is conceivable <laughs> that the T-shirt might have been for a more svelter and younger man, more svelte and younger man. It is possible, um, but the this one is already. It's there. It's, I've got pleasure from it all week because it sat there, this lovely big box with your handwritten label on it, and yeah. I'm waiting for the moment of opening it. And we will have to share with listeners, of course what was inside it next week it but the listeners true. i'm convinced we'll find true. out if this is an israeli thing or a jewish thing or a british thing i want to hear from our listeners whether this is just a me thing that you think you have to wait of course or whether you are not barbarians and you agree with me that the if you get a birthday present you open it on your birthday i think that's the law almost <laughs> i was quite shocked by um this alternative approach from my co-host but i'm also <laughs> extremely grateful and i'm very very excited about it and looking forward to it so and please you. send your responses to unholy at keshet hyphen 
tv.com. Um, Jonathan, have the best birthday. Have fun. And we will talk next week. And we will say our thank yous to uh, Lior Friedman and Rom Atik and Omer Primat and Irad Eshel. And of course, a very big thank you to Richard Myron. And we will talk next week. And you will share your birthday experiences. I will indeed. And if you've enjoyed it, do write and rate and review and spread the word and uh, and otherwise spread the love. So thank you very much and see you next week. You're neat. See you.